Hi, and welcome to this installment of our New Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Ann Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Assistant Professor of Latin American and Iberian Cultures Ana Paulina Lee's book, Mandarin Brazil, Race, Representation, and Culture. First, we'll hear Anna speaking about her book at the panel, and then I'll bring you my interview with Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia, Denise Cruz. Thank you all for joining us tonight for the book celebration of Mandarin Brazil. I am so grateful you could all be here. Before I begin, I would like to take a few moments to thank Sarah Cole, Dean of Humanities, and Eileen Gloli and Emily Bloom, directors of the Heyman Center for hosting and sponsoring this event. I'm also really grateful to my colleagues from my home department, Latin American and Iberian Cultures, Alberto Medina and Gracia Montaldo, for being part of this panel, and to Denise Cruz from English and Comparative Literature, and Barbara Weinstein for coming all the way from NYU. <laughs> Above 14th <laughs> Street on the street. With us today. Thank you for being with us today. I'm also so thrilled to see my students here. I wrote this book with them in mind. I'm going to start by reading a few passages from the book, and then I'll turn it over to the speakers for their comments. In 2009, China surpassed the United States in becoming Brazil's largest trade partner. Today, the largest Chinese population in Latin America lives in Brazil, totaling approximately 250,000 to 300,000 people. What may appear to be a new economic and political relationship, however, has a history that dates back nearly 500 years. Within the first decades of the 16th century, European voyages opened new trade routes that connected vastly distant parts of the world through establishing new links among Asia, Europe, Africa, and the Americas. While extensive trade networks had already been in place for centuries along the Silk and Spice routes, 16th century globalization, migration, settlement, and cultural exchange reshaped trade on a global level and marked a world historical transformation. Geopolitics and global trade established the beginning of international law, and state power was extended to the seas. World trade relations produced new collisions of local and diasporic knowledges, and it created new ways of knowing and representing places, people, and objects from distant lands. Following Christopher Columbus's discovery of the New World, King Manuel I of Portugal commissioned Portuguese explorers Pedro Álvares Cabral, Vasco da Gama, to lead their fleets to find swifter trade routes to the Indies, a name that stuck even after Europeans quickly realized that the Americas was not India. Indeed, the earliest map to depict the Western Hemisphere made by German geographer Martin Waldseemüller in 1507, here, shows that the Americas are located on a separate continent from Asia, Africa, and Europe. Regardless, European explorers and cartographers continued to refer to Asia and the Americas as the Indies. The malleability of the word Indies, it could refer to Asia or the Americas, indicates that the notion of continents as a fixed and evident aspect of the Earth's surface is itself a myth whose borders, place names, and regions, like Orient and Occident, tell us more about the spatial divisions through which people organize knowledge about themselves and world than the Earth's geographical terrains. 
Multiple and at times conflicting <coughs> names for people and places indicate the emergence of a new modern world order where imperialist projects were emerging and had not yet defined and claimed geopolitical borders. For example, the word Indies could refer to people or objects from Mexico or India. Its variable definitions never referred to culturally and historically significant Indi indigenous Mexicans or Indians, but the word racialized Mexicans and Indians together. Processes of overlapping racialization give insight into how notions about nearness and farness became bound to emotions, bodies, and collective imaginaries. This economy of racialization reveals <coughs> geopolitical and economic interests that shaped the imaginative geography of a place and ideas about people from that place. Now this reading is from chapter two, which discusses Qing Dynasty plans to send Chinese immigrants to Brazil. In the years immediately following the U.S. Exclusion Act of 1882, late Qing officials looked to places in the Americas, like Brazil, as a favorable option for Chinese political and economic expansion via the overseas Chinese. During the second half of the 19th century, the Qing steadily lifted bans on Chinese emigration. In addition to signing the 1860 Peking Treaty and the 1868 Birmingham Treaty that both lifted bans and legalized Chinese emigration, the Qing governmental attitude about overseas Chinese people also shifted, no longer perceiving them as traitors to the motherland <coughs> who deserved a punishment worthy of death, but as victims of greedy foreigners and Chinese smugglers. This shift helped further the view among Chinese people that the restriction of overseas Chinese people from the United States by means of the Chinese Exclusion Act was particularly unjust and despicable. Qing diplomats grappled with the negative perception of the Chinese that led to Chinese exclusion. <coughs> Xue Futun claimed that the US public at large deemed Chinese people unsightly and had animal-like eating style and appearance. Likewise, Chi Guoying, Chinese minister to the United States, Spain, and Peru noted that the illegal actions of overseas Chinese, including opium smuggling and tong wars, had been the grounds for exclusion. These critiques obscured a larger problem, namely the lack of overseas Chinese voting power in the U.S. democratic system. In face of global anti-Chinese sentiment and the decline of Manchu rule, Late Qing leaders and diplomats took great interest in Meiji Japan's treatment of Japanese migration and overseas settlement as a model that Chinese migration could adopt to further Chinese state goals. And here's a poster, a propaganda poster with a man holding his family in his arms and pointing to Brazil. The Meiji attached a nationalist meaning to migration and treated it as an extension of the state's economic and political objectives. With the decline of the Qing Empire and Japan's rise as a superpower following the successes in the Sino-Japanese War and Russo-Japanese War, many Chinese intellectuals and statesmen looked to Meiji Japan as a model of governance and modernity. The Meiji Restoration ushered in a new period of modernization and national development, and it also transformed Japan into an imperial power with the goal of expanding throughout Asia into other parts of the world, including Brazil. Meiji leaders believed that in order for Japan to be considered a civilized nation, it would have to follow the European practice of colonization. Because Brazil was, in a, was a young nation and in the initial <coughs> stages of immigration, Fu Yunlong, 
Qing diplomat and senior secretary in the Ministry of War estimated that it could accommodate 200,000 to 300,000 Chinese workers. Immigration on a scale without parallel anywhere else. And here's a map that he made um, as part of his research in Brazil. Countering well-known accounts of the exploitative treatment of overseas Chinese in places like Cuba and the United States, he instead portrayed labor conditions favorably by painting a one-dimensional, romanticized portrait of the conditions of enslaved people, stating that Brazil, Brazilians rarely treated slaves cruelly and social mobility existed. They were given room and board. They could plant and sell crops, the proceeds from which people used to purchase many missions. And once they attained emancipation, they became citizens. These views sold a vision of Brazil as a vast land of opportunity, ripe to take in China's peasant agriculturalist, agriculturalist population. By romanticizing slavery and projecting the view of indigenous people as a leisurely class, Fu Yinglong created a portrait of Brazil and its inhabitants that depicted the land's agricultural possibilities, extractive industries, and its potential to reward hardworking immigrants. His written and illustrated portrayals of the Chinese landscape, of the Brazilian landscape, and people drove forward the idea that it was a hospitable place for Chinese settlement. Emphasizing available lands and favorable labor conditions, he divided Brazil's population into minzu, or ethnos, and he created a number of groups. So one group he created were the Chinese, another group the Portuguese, a third group he lumped together British, French, Italian, and Swiss, a fourth group were the emancipated slaves who became citizens. Uh, another group, indigenous people. And a sixth group, mis mis miscellaneous groups without clear lineage. Without clear lineage. <laughs> Fu Yunlong's classification of Mingzu suggests that ethnic and racial identities were not coterminous with nationalism and statism for him, but in flux. As he tried to make meaning out of Brazil's diverse population, he did not use a language bound to a collective memory about Brazil's racial and eugenic ideologies to describe Brazilian racial identities, such as mulatto, a commonly used but derogatory word that described people of mixed race parentage. Instead, he created a miscellaneous category for people without clear lineage. He included emancipated slaves, whose liberty transformed them into minzu citizens, and thus members of the national body. He did not give meaning to Chinese ethnicity in terms of Brazil's existing racial caste hierarchy. Rather, he created a separate Minzu category for the Chinese and the Brazilian landscape. He was producing a new understanding of an emerging Chinese national consciousness that intertwined his understanding of Minzu with circumoceanic memories of racial formation, including the processual transference of colonial racial ideologies into notions of racialized nationalisms. Now, we'll hear my interview with Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature, Denise Cruz. I'm here with Denise Cruz, Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia. Thank you so much for meeting with me. You're welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here. Great. So I'll just start with the question that um, about the development of Asian American studies as a discipline which you spoke about at the panel. Sure. And you focused on how Anna Paulina Lee's book builds on and expands conversations within the discipline. And I was wondering if you could speak first about the origins of Asian American mm -hmm. studies because it seems that it's intrinsic to what Anna mm -hmm. is doing. 
and its relationship to transnationalism, which you also spoke about. And then if you could also speak about her book, Expands on Scholarship in the Field, I know a small question. No, that's <laughs> fine. Um, sure. And I think it's important to remember that um, Asian American studies in terms of its origin um, was rooted, or at least we see it as rooted initially um, in student-led protests, mm-hmm. um, especially students who are calling for institutional attention um, to courses that would address their history and experience. And a lot of this was really um, centered in the San Francisco Bay Area, right. although it uh, later on extended elsewhere. And I want to call attention to that because for a long time, Asian American studies um, has been rooted in the development of a political coalition um, that imagined this pan-Asian American identity. Um, And then what happened was after that, writers and scholars were trying to recover and consolidate what I think we might call an initial canon of Asian American uh, culture, mm-hmm. uh, a set of texts and authors to teach. So the example that people often go go to is Frank Chin's IE anthology. Um, Frank Chin is just one of several editors, but that was a 1970s book um, that collected works by Asian American authors, and it was really one of the foundational texts of Asian American studies. Um, and that anthology has since been criticized in part because of what um, the the categories that they were trying to um, define in terms of what counted as Asian American. Mm -hmm. And uh, as the field developed, um, you know, uh, scholars really began to call attention to just to have, despite the importance of Americanness to Asian American studies, or despite the idea of this kind of pan-ethnic or pan-national, cross-national coalition, the field has for a long time also been transnational. Mm -hmm. So, um, there um, were scholars such as Selwyn Wong, for example, at the turn of the 20, uh, 21st century, who was kind of contending that, um, that the activists who originally influenced the foundation of Asian American studies were responding not just to U.S. civil rights activism and cultural nationalist movements, but also to the broader global third world liberation movements or cultural revolutions in China, um, Mm -hmm. the Vietnam War movement. Um, And so um, for quite some time now, Asian American studies has tried to stress its transnational and diasporic um, connections, Mm -hmm. in part through a turn to the Asian diaspora. Now, traditionally, or for quite some time, this this turn has been mapped along an east-west axis um, across the Pacific. Um, One that's, of course, influenced by something like Edward Said's Orientalism. But Mm -hmm. um, more recently, scholars have really tried to underscore other kinds of of, uh, formations. Um, So Meng Ai, or Erica Lee, or Gary Okahiro, Mm -hmm. David Pilabalur, Lisa Lowe. they've mapped this kind of alternative route or circuit of Asian American studies that isn't just just um, charted along the East-West. And I think Anna Paulina Lee's um, Mandarin Brazil really draws upon these debates and significantly extends them. So Anna Paulina's work um, is uh, centered in part on a rereading of the Global South um, and on Asians, Asia's connection to the global south um so work in asian american literary and cultural studies that 
examines um, this kind of alternative circuit okay. of the global south. Um, I think for the most part is, is interested um, in the U.S. and Mexico, um, but Anna Paulina takes us really further south to Brazil um, in her work. Yeah. Right. Do you, have, do you need me to expand? On no, that? no. I don't know. That's great. I think that my next question gets into a little bit more of what Anna Paulina is doing in okay. her work. And I was wondering, you mentioned um, two things about Anna Paulina's methodologies at the panel, her, yeah. her analytical frameworks and those methodological models that she's using, yeah. which you called portable, which I find really interesting. <laughs> so I wonder if we could start, could you talk more about those frameworks and models mm-hmm. in the book? Yes, and I think one of the things that I thought was really striking about Anna Polina's work was was how um, she the book offers a theoretical model and methodology that other scholars can take up and um, and extend or expand or or use in their own practices. And um, one of the key models that she examines in the book is what she calls circumoceanic memory um, and. Mm-hmm. She offers us that analytic through uh, Joseph Roach and um, also by extension Gilroy, the Black Atlantic. But she's asking in that, in terms of considering oceanic or circumoceanic um, discourses or circulation, she's asking us to consider what might happen when we think about these intersections of global capitalism and labor, uh, racialized labor spanning not just the Pacific, but also the Atlantic. Um, And so here she's really extending an initial nation-based or or even U.S.-based focus um, and that east-west travel to instead think about um, what she calls um, the global idea of race, Um, this idea of a a national consciousness that's necessarily um, global. And one of the things that's really, that I found very striking um, was on one hand, it's this analytical framework that's, both relational and local. And I, mm. I think it's really important to highlight that about Anna Polonia's work because um, the, what's really stunning about the book is its ability to hone in on um, very tiny yet incredibly important details um, and to reveal um, through this kind of layering effect of these patterns um, that she's drawing attention to. Um, I think that's really interesting this kind of talking back between the the local and the relational and the other thing that she calls attention to is um the formal and multilingual practices so that she is working in multiple languages in mandarin in portuguese (laughs) and it's and that is really stunning too the facility with uh multiple languages and the way she's able to close read documents and texts um, not just within the context of historical or cultural um, influences, but also the linguistic influences. Right. Yeah, and um, I think those two things get at the creation of the archive that she's yeah. built for herself, which mm-hmm. you also mentioned. You were talking about how it's not only a textual uh, archive, but also one that takes into account sound mm-hmm. and performance, mm-hmm. um, which yeah. I found really interesting. Yes, is she... The, the archive that she examines is, um, I think, one that she contends is necessarily fragmented, mm-hmm. um, that is difficult to trace, but that we can nevertheless, um, through attention to this circumoceanic model, piece it together in these kind of uh, 
flickering images of the coolie, for example, right. as the coolie emerges in a line of poetry. But then we also see that figure emerge in a contemporary mural. Um, right. She will connect that figure to um, actual objects like porcelain trade, or um, she'll connect that trade and circulation to accounts of travel. Um, and so the archive in its disparate nature is really important to the work because one of the things that she's really interested in is how um, this memory or construction of Mandarin Brazil emerged in multiple spaces, right. um, in many different formats, um, and that it can't be thus analyzed only in one kind of archival location, that we really have to think about text, object, image, um, sound performance um, and what's amazing about that is it creates this um, multimedia portrait of the figure and its importance with these registers of the visual the sonic um, the performative um, so we can see the figure at work in these different spaces that's fascinating to me as a musicologist. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I work with sound. So yeah. I'm always really interested to see combinations of mm -hmm. the literate and the sonic. Because mm -hmm. sound is an object sometimes is sometimes falls by the wayside. People tend to focus on the visual. But mm -hmm. I was really excited to hear that not only is Anna Paulina looking at popular music uh, and more um, traditional ideas of musical sound, but also mm -hmm. city sounds mm -hmm. and soundscapes of uh, urban life. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was fascinating. And it is fascinating, I think, even considering the historical context that she's working with. So if mm -hmm. you're thinking about, um, I think, if you think of, of that history and racial formation as centering in a lot of ways on the discourse of visibility, mm -hmm. um, the ways in which science and phenomenology and uh, biology um, uh, kind of overlapped in in terms of identifying or constructing racialized figures. What's wonderful about her work and her the ways in which she draws upon performance studies and sound studies and um, uh, other registers, sonic registers, is, is that she's giving us this alternative circulation of race that emerges not just via sight but also. Um, through what we can hear, um, through musical performance, or through what we can touch through the kind of object, and I, I, I think that's one of the things that I find most interesting about the book. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I yeah, I know that she talks a lot about race, but you also mentioned that um, her analysis of issues of gender and sexuality mm. were really. Um, striking to you, and I wondered if you could say more about that as well. Yes, I mean I think. Um, I think what she's the in terms of the analysis of gender and sexuality, she is uh, quite interested in how the racialized construction of um, mm -hmm. the Chinese labor as a figure also depended upon um, how that figure was circulating in terms of uh, gender and sexuality. So that the, these were figures that were non-normative that didn't fit within the constraints of, um, say, Brazilian culture more broadly and I think this connection between Brazilian constructions of gender and sexuality alongside this kind of more global or transnational discourse of what um, 
Chinese masculine and femininity might have looked like or meant right. is really fascinating. Um, what happens when the overlap of multiple era, of multiple empires contributes to the creation of um, a gendered and sexed figure? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, an incredible question, um, which gets sort of back to this idea of what makes um, someone an American, an Asian American person, right, in a way, mm-hmm. um, because that's what the Frank Chin anthology was getting at, right? It was defining for us what, who was Asian American mm-hmm. and who was mm-hmm. not. And I wonder, and it seems like Anna Polina gets at this, trying to understand how this global context is um, commenting mm-hmm. on or affecting mm-hmm. how that, how that uh, identity is shaped mm-hmm. for those authors. Yes, for sure. And I think that it's it's important to remember, too, that um, in terms of constructing an anthology like um, what Chin and the editors were doing, in part it was stemming from this desire, again, for institutional visibility, sure. for making a group of people politically legible and um, legible in terms of educational discourse. And... Um, I think it's it's important to remember that particular context yeah. now, um, and the ways in which all of our work is in part building upon that that foundation. You know that the institutional establishment of Asian American studies, um, in what in in many ways allows us to do the kind of work in terms of uh, questioning these alternative cir- circuits or creating um, these kind of analytical frameworks that center um, global circulation or transnational circulation. So Anna Paulina's work is drawing as much upon the kind of specifics of, I think, interdisciplinary Asian American work as it is upon hemispheric studies and studies of Brazil. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess um, thinking about now in the current historical moment, maybe we can close by... uh, talking about what you closed your comments with mm-hmm. in the panel, which was to talk about the current historical moment that Anapolina's book is entering. Um, could you say a bit about that and the significance of her book right now? Yes, I think it's really helpful, or or as I was reading Anapolina's book, I um, was really struck by how it comes at a moment, that after, or in a moment in which people are kind of uh, thinking about how these more traditional models of East and West or global North and North and South um, are seem inadequate to describe uh, contemporary formations of race and transnational labor. So um, what do we do with um, the status of China as an economic superpower on one hand and as a source of labor for the global North? Um, and I think Anna Paulina's work offers this alternative critical geography um, that asks us to both historicize these contemporary developments and to think outside of these usual parameters. So if we think not just in terms of the east-west or north-south, but rather in terms of this circum-oceanic route, um, what alternative glimpses of race and labor and culture can we see? Mm-hmm. Um, when we use that analytical model um, to put together an archive that might not be immediately legible, right. uh, what other registers in terms of objects or subjects or 
sounds um, can we see and touch and hear? I think these are all um, critical to the critical uh, or critical to the intervention of the book, and um, they're all made beautifully visible in her study of these materials. Right. Right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Ana Paulina Lee's Mandarin Brazil, Race, Representation, and Memory. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Alan Stewart's The Oxford History of Life Writing, Volume 2, Early Modern. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.